I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Forward. Planet Forward has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement in the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales, and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Forward in spring or online at planetforward.com. You're listening to Crime Scene Today. I'm your host, Dan Zintek, where we talk about current issues facing law enforcement, forensics, and crime scene investigation. This month is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. You know, trafficking in persons is a serious crime, grave violation of human rights, and every year thousands of men, women, and children fall to the hands of traffickers in their own countries and abroad. Uh, this day, we have uh, Tyler Dunman with us, who uh, created and uh, helped organize the Human Trafficking Coalition in Montgomery County and then later moved on to the Institute of Human Trafficking. We're going to talk about all that. But Tyler, thank you so much for coming in. And and I'm so happy to have you here uh, with your current assignment being uh, in Uganda, just the fact that, that you're home in Montgomery County and it's just yes. great to see you and, and spend time with you. Uh, and just the opportunity we have uh, with your expertise, your knowledge in this area. So just thank you so much for coming in. Absolutely. So to talk a little bit, uh, I've known you for many years from your career at the Montgomery County DA's office, and uh, I can tell you that uh, when you left on your current assignment, there were so many positions and things that needed to be filled because of all the things that you had started and done, and, and to talk about some of those and, and to, I guess, just sort of, uh, I guess, brag on you and address sort of your character is... Uh, if you ever saw a problem in Montgomery County, if you saw something that uh, people and citizens that needed help and something needed to be addressed, it was something that you you stepped forward and, and whether someone else helped you with the charge or you just helped them with it, it was something that you always did. And you know, one thing that always stood out, we, um, in 2016, uh, we got a report from A&M that we were uh, number one in DWI fatalities. Mm -hmm. And that was something that you had taken on and, and something that, um, Maybe a lot of law enforcement citizens don't realize is the involvement that our DA's office has with mm -hmm. these uh, vehicular manslaughter and traffic. I mean, y'all went yeah. to the scene. Y'all, yes. y'all dealt with the families. Y'all had an emotional connection to yeah. to dealing with these types of wrecks. And and honestly, at some point, yeah, I mean, everybody's putting their hands up. Like, how do we stop this from yeah. happening? How do we stop a conversation from another family that they've lost someone? Right. Yeah. I know that uh, you reached out. To law enforcement leaders to create DWI units is one mm -hmm. of the uh, reasons that led to uh, Precinct 3 Constable creating a DWI yes. enforcement to try to, to address those things. We worked many homicides together, yeah. and ones that uh, we certainly um, hate working is child homicides, mm -hmm. child fatalities. Uh, and there is direction by the state uh, that there's a child fatality review board, and I know you took that on. Yeah. Uh, if you sort of can explain what, what that does, what a child fatality review team or board is. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, each, each county, um, uh, first of all, thank you, Dan, for having me on. This is, uh, this is great, and it's good to see you as well. And it's good to be back in Montgomery County in Texas for a little while. Um, uh, this is our home, and so we're always, we're, you know, grateful to be back. And um, yeah, so the child fatality review team uh, is, is something that uh, most counties uh, are, are supposed to have and operate, particularly counties of the size of Montgomery County. Uh, and the idea behind it, it's a legislative kind of enacted 
um, process uh, where each county uh, gets together a multidisciplinary team uh, to review each child fatality that occurs within the county. And there's a lot of reasons for it, um, but, uh, but ultimately what you're looking at is, is, is there certain environmental factors or other factors in your county that um, is, is causing, uh, you know, uh, deaths of children? I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, obviously, anyone would agree that uh, child fatalities or de child deaths is a serious issue. Um, and so the child fatality review team, um, you know, the way it works in Montgomery County is we bring in law enforcement prosecutors, uh, you know, our, our NGO, non-governmental organizations, uh, health professionals, uh, EMS, uh, Montgomery County Hospital District, hospitals uh, like Texas Children's Memorial Harm and others. And we all kind of get around in, in a room and uh, each month or so, we, we literally go through each of the child fatalities uh, that have occurred uh, in the previous year. And we're just studying them, looking at them to see, you know, you know were there any issues uh, that, uh, that, that need to be addressed from a, a countywide uh, system perspective um, uh, and, and see how we can work as a team to address those issues. You know, most of the fatalities that we came across obviously were uh, were accidental. We have, right. uh, you know, if they were in a car fatality, if it's a, uh, a SIDS death, if yeah. you know, a medical issue going on, all those are also reviewed. And that, luckily, that was the majority right. of the cases. However, the one thing that I know came up that we felt was preventable, mm. that we kept seeing over and over, uh, was co-sleeping. Yeah. Yes. And, and that led to us which is, which is the purpose of the team. It's, it's to identify, right. is there something in public that we can change yep. that, that will save you know, uh, uh, lives? And, and so I know that you helped develop the co-sleeping team, right. um, which really didn't involve law enforcement as much, and it really, to a point, really didn't involve the DA's office as right. much as it did with some way to educate the public, yep. you know, qu quit sleeping with your kid. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, co-sleeping every year, I know you, you were on the team as well, and you remember it was our number one killer of children, um, you know, hands down. Uh, I, and so what we realized, we had almost every hospital in the county represented on the team. Um, and, and, and those entities realized that, uh, hey, they could break off and, and start this co-sleeping co, co team uh, that we helped organize to begin maybe at getting all the hospitals on the same page. One of the, one of the things that came from the team is that the hospitals did not educate, you know, mothers and fathers as they exited the hospital in the same way. They didn't have a systematic approach to making sure people understood the dangers of co-sleeping with your child. And so uh, that's been going on and still going, uh, and those, those hospitals are coordinating those efforts to, to, to systematically educate well, I know, and there was another um, education thing missing, and that was the, what we found is that when when a mother has a child at the hospital, they cram so much right. information before they leave. I mean, it's you know, here's uh, sleeping was like the narrow yeah. part of it. You know, here's here's your breastfeeding, your formula, all all these vaccination things that you need to do. So here's this list. And by the way, in the past 24 hours, you gave birth. Right. Okay, right. I mean, so yeah. they're exhausted. Yeah. They're all there is on their mind is getting home to a comfortable environment and and listening as best they can to just this mirage of, of information. And so we felt it was something later, right? right? It, it needed to be followed up on, whether it's at when they got their shots, when there's pediatrician, pediatrician point. But visits. 
it had to be a constant conversation yep. to try to to stop that. And and we also recognized early on that it was not uncommon. I mean, it was uh, nearly everybody in the room, even the the medical professionals, us that at some point you had your child, mm-hmm. you were exhausted, they finally fell asleep on your chest, right? And you just didn't move, right? Because you don't want them to wake up. I mean, we we all had been there, so it wasn't that we were saying these people that this happened was bad people. We felt no. horrible for them. It's just how can we do something to educate, and prevent this? Right? Yeah, child sleeping, uh, you know, had been a cultural thing. It's been something for many, many years that is viewed as good, uh, and there still is a good way, a safe way to do that with the child sleeping in your room versus in your bed. But you're exactly right. Um, it, it's one of those things that we're just slowly uh, turning the tide on. Now. This was not the the first multidisciplinary thing that you were involved in in Montgomery County. So you were heavily involved in Safe Harbor. Yes. Uh, certainly, uh, many of your projects all dealt with protecting the children of Montgomery County and, yeah. and innocent victims to things. Um, so we've had uh, Victoria on from Safe Harbor, and and she certainly has has talked about things that they do there. But this, I think, sort of tied into us seeing. Um, victims of, of many times it was their relatives uh, but uh, this also started uh, moving into us seeing parents actually trafficking their own yeah. kids I think probably uh, the first I won't say first indication but it, it was part of this opening of this trafficking right. series that we started seeing right yeah yeah, I mean, absolutely. One thing that happens when you get a lot of experts in the room, like an MDT does through a multidisciplinary team, uh, through like Children's Safe Harbor, is, you know, we begin to get to examine and dissect these cases better. And you're exactly right. As a result of that, uh, we started to see uh, a form of exploitation that uh, maybe we hadn't all recognized before. You know, and it, it is it is the, uh, the most common type of trafficking, which is what we call domestic trafficking. And it's hard for people to understand that, uh, that a parent could traffic their own child. And, and what I mean traffic mean to sell or exploit their own children. Uh, usually sexually uh, is, is probably the most common, but it could be forced labor. It could be a num- number of other ways of, that they exploit their children. And most, the normal person, you know, outside of law enforcement and criminal justice, they they've never seen that. They don't yeah, know they what that looks like. That's even they wouldn't believe it if they if they um, if if they saw it anyways. So, you know, one of the cases, Dan, I think you remember, we had a we had a mother uh, that really highlights this point. We had a mother who uh, was down in a shelter in Houston, right. um, and she had a two-year-old uh, little girl with her, uh, and um, our our team up here. Uh, was working, doing some undercover work, and and make, made contact with her online, and, and uh, posed as a as an older man in his fifties, uh, looking to buy a child for sex, and this undercover officer made contact with this this woman, and said, look, uh, she said for fifteen hundred dollars you can have sex with my two year old daughter, uh, and so that the undercover officer you know proceeds that and says, hey, if you'll get you and, and your child on a bus to Conroe, I'll meet you at the bus stop. Right. And sure enough, she did. She got on a bus in Houston with her two-year-old, brought that child up here, and of course, as soon as she got off the bus, she was arrested by law enforcement. But, I mean, it, it's hard to believe that that kind of thing happens, but it does, and, and well, that's what's scary. And it changed the way that we started doing ICAC 
I mean, right. internet crimes against children, because up to that point, I mean, we, we certainly had, we'd always posed as 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, that type of thing, and trying to have them uh, start a conversation and try to meet up with a detective versus them fi- finding a real child out there. Right. But, but it sort of uh, changed our workflow and mindset that there were parents yeah. willing to, to sell their children. And so that started a, a new uh, line of thinking for us that yeah. you know uh, different people to find it's like hey do you have the child and and it's it's sad how many people you know that we found online yeah. there's a whole different world that uh, you know pe- most people don't experience right no, that's exactly right you know so but so that is certainly one form of human trafficking that that we ran into um, and I really feel as though we were on the forefront in Montgomery County mm-hmm. as far as creating a coalition of yeah. human trafficking. So to the point I remember, we had already had the coalition for it's probably about two years, three years, and we had uh, someone come in, uh, I think it was in the uh, federal realm, to say, hey, we would like to assist you in, in developing something for Montgomery County. And we said, well, we have this, we have this, we have this. Right. And they were like, Y'all don't need our yeah, help. Yeah. We're, we're, y'all are yeah. fine. Y'all are ahead of so many people, right? right. Um, but that did start. And if you can sort of, I guess, uh, uh, talk about how that came about. I, I do the the one thing I remember, the the original we were talking about, what to name it. Yeah. You know, it, we had come up with, you know, uh, Montgomery County uh, for Human Trafficking. We're like, no, that, that yeah. sounds like we're for <laughs> we're it. We're promoting it. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah. we ended up, Montgomery County Coalition Against Human Trafficking has yeah. been around for years now. But if you can sort of speak to how that came about. Yeah, you know, I, uh, as a prosecutor, you know, working in, in special crimes, uh, dealing with cases against children and whatnot, I mean, I think that, um, uh, like you said, law enforcement, DA's office, others were probably um, – uh, not seeing the trafficking cases that that we are, we're not identifying them as right. such, uh, even though they were they were there. Um, so around 2014, 2015, we started to see some cases, and uh, I know Precinct Three worked a case in the Woodlands with the Sheriff's Department um, that uh, was a was a was a trafficking case in the Woodlands, um, and that was kind of the catalyst uh, for realizing that we we had a lot of work to do. That you know, as we tried to tackle that investigation. Um, we, we weren't, you know, communicating effectively. We, we needed, uh, you know, victim service providers uh, to come on board to help us with uh, helping these victims. They're extremely traumatized. Uh, and so we, we, we made some mistakes. I mean, I think that ultimately the, the investigation went well, but uh, we were learning a lot at the time. So the coalition literally started with uh, the DA's office hosting a meeting uh, in, in, the, in the grand jury room uh, where we got everyone into a room. Uh, I started realizing that we had a lot of organizations that were, were, were helping trafficking victims in our county, um, but they were not connected deeply with law enforcement or the DA's office. Uh, we had a lot of law enforcement uh, folks that were working these cases in silos, right, you know, um, and other organizations that, that were involved in that in prevention and awareness and stuff. So we got them all into a room and begin to dissect about how we could work better. Uh, and that was the catalyst for the Montgomery County Coalition Against Human Trafficking, we realized that we needed to maintain a consistent communication education piece uh, for us to be successful in these cases. Uh, I, I realized, and I know you and I talked about this before, but we realized, unlike in maybe in some cases, uh, 
trafficking victims are extremely traumatized when they get out of these situations and law enforcement is not capable of, of helping them, guiding them in the way they need to be helped. They have to receive services from a victim service person. Well, and entity. not just that, but you have um, many that have been trafficked have been threatened in so many ways. Right. And they've been taught, I mean, they've been taught, for lack of a better term, they've been taught, threatened, whatever you want to say. You don't deal with law enforcement, right? right. I mean, uh, a law enforcement conversation is not how you're going to find out this person's traffic. And so in doing so, I know there were many services set up that we would expect someone that was being trafficked to seek, even though they weren't seeking law enforcement, right? right? They're, they're seeking uh, shelter, they're seeking food, they're seeking some medical Medical care, you know, uh, that if we could put those partners in place, And then develop that trust right. with them that that law enforcement could come into it, right. but they weren't law enforcement wasn't the first line on, on this, right? Right? Yeah, they needed to come from behind in, in in a way. So, I mean, what I guess what services do you think benefit the most of getting someone out of trafficking with it not being law enforcement up front? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the situations uh, with with these victims is they have nowhere to go. I mean, obviously, if it's a child, uh, which is very common, then you have CPS, other government entities get involved to try to place the child in a safe place. But uh, even with uh, adult women or men that we encountered, they needed they needed a place to go. I mean, you know, uh, and law enforcement, you know, they're not equipped to, to place victims in, in places like that. I mean, you know, so the service providers we brought on board, um, like Redeem Ministries, others, they provide shelter, you know, that immediate shelter and even long-term shelter for these victims. Uh, and that was critical. That was a critical piece for us because um, our the solution historically for law enforcement ha- has been two options that neither one of them are su- usually successful. One of them is just letting the, the victim go back out onto go the street where they're or going. taking them to jail right. for an well, offense that, that which is great have, to they, develop a relationship yeah, with Yeah, which them. as you can imagine doesn't go far at all for trying to develop a relationship with a victim. And and there's still a lot of law enforcement across uh, across the country and even the world that that take the mindset that they just will arrest the victim and 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 we're seeing there that that usually never works out to the benefit of law enforcement. Well, and bringing that up, it, that was another uh, mindset change that mm-hmm. I think really came with human trafficking is, uh, you remember the day that we would arrest a group of prostitutes, right. and then we post all their pictures yeah. in the paper that uh, these are all the prostitutes that were out there in this yeah. sting operation that was done. And so the mindset has changed, yeah. rightfully so, that, you know, Guess what? These women didn't want to be yeah. prostitutes, right. right? Someone was forcing them to do this. These are victims, not criminals. Yeah. Okay, and I think that mindset uh, has certainly changed. I don't see yeah. the the posters as yeah. we saw before, yeah. uh, and when those things are happening, there's more of an approach towards uh, the Johns yeah. that are creating a situation where that is possible, and then. If we gain access to getting them help, to having that conversation in some way, right. and training the officers better to have that conversation, versus uh, there wasn't any training before. The training was if they were a prostitute and they were selling, then, then they it went to jail, been, right? Yeah. I mean, just as any other crime, did it meet the elements and you put them in jail, right? Right. Um, but that also seems to be, I think, I think the next step because so many people are focused on just the prostitution or sex trafficking part of human trafficking 
and as as awful by all means that is, that's not the only no. human trafficking that's going on. No, no, it's not. I mean, the other the other big sector that particularly in the U.S. is is uh, involving forced labor, um, and those cases are a lot more difficult uh, to detect. Uh, it usually, uh, more often than not, involves that's where a lot of our male victims of trafficking uh, or uh, it could be in the food industry, the agricultural industry, the, the, the day labor type of industry. Um, and, you know, so we, we still are a long ways from having good strategies in law enforcement to attack uh, those sorts of, uh, those sorts of uh, forced labor situations. One of them that's happening that I'm seeing globally is, is uh, the awareness that's happening within business, within businesses. Yeah. They're starting to be educated on trafficking and maybe they don't even realize that their business practices or their, you know, down the chain vendors are using certain uh, exploitative techniques in their work. And I, as a business person, them all as, they know they're getting they don't good know. cost. Yeah, they're a subcontractor, they right? Exactly. Uh, and so that is a that's probably the most effective way, or one one of them that we can attack the forced labor side of things is to educate businesses start holding them accountable for their supply chains and different things like that uh, as we go about it. But it's still hard. I mean, even in this county, uh, I remember a number of cases of, of, of intel coming in about a forced labor situation within a business or a restaurant, and uh, we had a lot of difficulty in attacking that, successful at times, um, but that's another big area as well. So how does the forced labor thing happen, I guess? Are these people that they're, they're promised they're going to come to the U.S.? Or yeah. They're promised something for their labor, and that just never ends? Is it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of them that we saw, uh, particularly in the Houston area, they, they, they fall into the uh, usually the agricultural farming type uh, situation, the day labor type situation where uh, maybe they've been smuggled into the country. And smuggling is different from trafficking. Smuggling is simply bringing one or more people across an international border, right. uh, and, and, and that's kind of the it. It ends and there. Not, not expecting anything yeah. from, you yeah. paid me money you to get you money. here. And right. Uh, so people sometimes confuse that. Trafficking is more or less the buying or selling or the exploiting of the people once they get here, and that happens a lot of times, uh, particularly from Mexico and in, in our region where uh, folks will come into the country legally and they're told, hey, you've got to work for me uh, you know, for six months, a year, two years before you pay off the debt that you owe here. me of coming here. Well, uh, so they end up, they, they do whatever work they're told. They may work domestically in a home uh, for a, you know, a, a family uh, where they, they're not paid. Um, and that can go on and on and on, and they never get out of that. And it's, it's more or less having a slave that works for you for free uh, to pay off some false debt or something that, that goes on. I and mean, that's, that's typically how it starts. It's, it's someone you know, paying off a debt or something that, that ultimately never ends in, in you know, um, an actual uh, employment engagement. Well, and, and we've certainly heard it's referred to as modern-day slavery. Right. I mean, and I remember a case, I, I don't remember if it was in Houston or one of the suburbs of Houston of, of a caregiver, caregiver uh, that, again, they, had, they locked in the closet, mm -hmm. they, you know, uh, hardly gave food but was raising, like, their five children type yeah. of thing. Yes. Um, and that went on, I want to say, like 13 years, 15 years. I mean, it was some, yeah. you know, astronomical time that you, you couldn't even fathom that that this is happening in a general suburb that, that yeah. we would think, uh, you know, in this area it would be something similar to, to the woodlands or, or whatever, that this is happening next door and that there's no clue, there's no sign that this is going on. I mean, yeah. they uh, are not allowed to leave the house. They don't 
even right. know someone else is in there. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very hard to detect. Uh, as you know, a lot of times law enforcement begins initiations with, with citizen reports and tips, uh, and that's that's very key of, of human trafficking cases, if it's sex or labor or whatever. Um, usually that's the, the, the best way for law enforcement to begin working on a case like that is to get a tip and begin to develop intelligence along the way. So, uh, you know, as, as you've mentioned, citizens being alert, looking around for things that don't look normal is, is really key to fighting human trafficking. You know, and, and to pause for, for a moment there, just I have the numbers in front of me uh, for the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is 1-888-373-7888. Again, that's 1-888-373-7888 or text 233-733 with help or info mm -hmm. uh, if you believe that uh, you have information related to trafficking and certainly if uh, you believe that uh, someone close to you or you yourself are a victim, uh, reach out. And uh, if you don't remember the numbers I was telling you, you can call your local law enforcement, get in touch with the local shelter. Uh, those people also help you. So where do you see... I guess the next phase in in the U.S. and I know the U.S. is certainly different than what we're about to talk about uh, where you're in Uganda. But yeah. um, how do you see the difference of what's happening here? The next stages of, of helping with trafficking in the U.S. Yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, I think as you mentioned, Montgomery County uh, has done a great job um, with law enforcement. You know, uh, with uh, folks like Ryan Gable and others, the sheriff, uh, DA Brett Ligon. I mean, so. We're staying on the forefront of this, um, which I think is unique. Um, even within Texas, there are still many, many counties and, and others that are still far behind. So um, they don't, we're not fully grasping some of these uh, strategies and, and attacking human trafficking within their region. So we, we have a long way to go with that. We need, we need more law enforcement training each other, uh, more DAs being aggressive in this area, being open-minded to like you mentioned, uh, you know, whether someone's a prostitute or an actual victim of trafficking. I mean, to you and I, that sounds logical, but we're still right. fighting uh, an uphill battle in a lot of parts of the country with law enforcement who haven't haven't turned on to that, that yet. So we have a lot of educating to do within criminal justice stakeholders. Um, we need a lot more uh, folks involved in, in the care piece of, of victims and in, in, in rehabilitation. Um, if, as you know, in, even in Montgomery County, we sometimes uh, would suffer with having available places to put, right. to put victims. I mean, uh, and so we need a lot of government funding to help these NGOs uh, have uh, develop these shelters that, that can do a good job of that. And it's tough work uh, with these victims. So, I mean, really, we're still working to, to build out the foundation um, of, of, of the things that we need across the sector. Um, proactive enforcement tactics, knowledge, training, community awareness pieces. Uh, again, Montgomery County does a good job in that area. The coalition does a good job. Um, but across the country, we're still, we're still struggling uh, with those things. You know, I think one of the hardest things is these are not, so what we normally see, like we see a family violence victim, we see a victim of sexual assault, um, we see what we expect to see as a victim, someone who is hurting, someone who's crying, someone who's asking for help. And that's very rarely the case in human trafficking. This person's not going to come up and ask for right. help. I mean, some do, right? Yeah. I mean, that, very some rare, do. but most of these, uh, and so when you have those non-government agencies, the ones that want to help, right. but this person is cussing them up and down saying, yeah. get 
you know, leave me alone, quit bothering me, because their only goal is getting back yep. to whoever's trafficking them, whether it's based on threat, whether it's, you know, based on them feeling mind-washed that this is the only life for them, that they're worthless otherwise. Yep. But that that's a unique thing related to this crime yep. that we don't have in other crimes. That's right. Yeah, it is. And so it it we just have to continue to find ways to break that cycle, uh, what we call that trauma bond that you mentioned, where the, the victims, they think that this trafficker loves them or, you know, whatever. There's different uh, manipulation that's happening there. Um, so those service providers are key. That's not really law enforcement prosecutors. That's not going to be our area right. of, we're of not victory. Help with that. Yeah, we're, we're, we have to understand it and participate in it. Um, but we have to continue to empower and support financially. Uh, you know, those those that are that are making that that contact with victims and trying to break that cycle and chain so that that we can ultimately uh, you know put the tra- trafficker in prison and rehabilitate that victim. Well, I mean, you uh, you set the foundation and certainly help with gathering the right people. And, and as you said, uh, those people have done an amazing job in Montgomery County yes. uh, before you decided to take on the world. Okay? And <laughs> yeah. so uh, you, I guess, were contacted or however it came about yeah. that you got the, the Human Trafficking Institute. Institute. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what is that? And, and uh, obviously it, it led to you taking on things other places. So, yes. So, yeah, man. You know the the journey to to where I'm at in Uganda is is a is an interesting one. Um, you know, obviously, you know I'm a man of faith, and and so you know it's one of those situations where where God opens doors, and you're either going to be obedient or you're not. Um, but uh, my wife and I had been going on some mission trips to to Africa in uh, you know the last several years, and really enjoyed it. weren't doing anything related to human trafficking. We we're doing different things. I had been to Uganda a couple of times, kind of really, uh, I don't know, felt a sense of, of call there and, and wanted to invest in there in some way, in that country in some way. Uh, the needs are so great there, as you can imagine. Um, but yeah, I, here I've been working this human trafficking journey and, and really didn't, uh, didn't know exactly why maybe uh, I, was, I was being pulled in, into it in such a way. Uh, historically at the DA's office, I'd worked on all sorts of cases. I mean, yep. vehicular crimes, as you mentioned, handled a number of homicides. Uh, I really was just getting to do whatever. But the last several years, I was really being pulled in, in the direction of human trafficking, the child ex- exploitation piece of it. Of course, it's something that I'm passionate about, like most people. Um, and I didn't really know where that was going to lead. Um, uh, I took a trip, the last trip I made to Uganda, um, I was in a church working with with our, our team, and I, I met a lady who worked at, at the director of public prosecutions office there in Uganda. And in Uganda, there's no county or state government; everything is federal. Okay. So it's like you know the national federal government. Um, and so the the director of public prosecution, that office is like the attorney general's office of the country. Okay. And they're so the, the prosecution. It's the for only the prosecution. Whole country. Yeah, for the okay. whole country, every type of offense. Uh, there's no localized enforcement in that way. Police are the same way. Um, and I, I met this lady. She she worked at the office. She was talking to me. We struck a conversation. She realized I was a prosecutor, and she started talking about some of the human trafficking issues they were having in the country, uh, and that uh, she believed there was a, a State Department fund funded program that was uh, about to kick off in the country, which of course piqued my interest. And she told me about the Human Trafficking Institute. Was kind of the facilitator of the great work, um, and. 
that's that's what it was. That was a conversation that happened. Um, I get back to the U.S. I look up the Human Trafficking Institute, uh, which is a, a non-government organization that is focused on police and prosecution, uh, investigation, prosecution of trafficking uh, by working within foreign governments. Um, and it's, it's to empower them, to help them with best practices, uh, and try to make them more effective in that way. And they were working in Uganda, um, uh, which, which I thought was which was really interesting. At that time, they didn't have anything posted for a job or whatever. But a couple months later, they posted a job for uh, a position. They were looking for a current or former prosecutor who had worked in trafficking, who understood it, um, uh, to be their special counsel to work within the DPP's office, so within the prosecution office there uh, in Uganda. And honestly, when I saw the posting, um, as I told you before, I mean, I, I, I knew that uh, I needed to apply for that. Um, and I told my wife, I showed it to her, and we both knew what was about to happen right. before I even applied. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I just, right. I just, so I just felt, felt it. Yeah, there. I mean, right. I felt that was something uh, that was going to happen. So I did apply, and, and, uh, and after uh, a process, uh, ultimately, you know, was, was uh, offered the job. Um, which you know then led to the difficult the decision of, of leaving uh, a job that I love tremendously. I mean, um, uh, and you know so, but you know we prayed about it and, and ultimately made the decision to to move our family and, and to accept this position in Uganda. Um, and you know I it's been powerful for a lot of reasons. Uh, personally, you know, uh, faith faith wise, uh, our family. There's so many things about it. but um, So I work for the Institute, Human Trafficking Institute, as their special counsel to the DPP um, there on their international crimes human trafficking team. I work with a team of about, uh, directly with about six prosecutors in country. They're Ugandan prosecutors. Um, and we, you know, work to, to, to go after traffickers in the country. Uh, most of them are domestic. Some of it's transnational where Ugandans are being trafficked out of the country to the Gulf states, Oman, Jordan, different places like that. They get there and then they're forced into these sexual exploitation or forced labor situations. Um, a lot of the, the case though that we volume is, is domestic within the country. Um, very similar schemes to what we see here in the U.S. Um, you know, so it, it's not been uh, a lot of overlap from what I was working here. Um, they do have some uh, different types of cases like child sacrifice, uh, child marriage, cases that I, of course, have never dealt with before. Luckily, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, luckily, uh, that have been just, you know, mind-blowing at times. So to, um, to step back for a sec, yeah. sort, sort of give us the, I guess, the demographics, geography, just about Uganda, Yeah. right? Yeah, Uganda is a, is a country of about uh, 40, 45 million people. Um, it's in East Africa, uh, near Kenya and Tanzania, uh, the Congo. Um, it's one of the smaller East African countries. It's about the size of the state of Oregon, um, you know. So it's it's uh, it's not a huge country geographically like some of those East African countries. Or it's right on uh, Lake Victoria, which is a huge lake. I think it's the third largest in the world um, there. But um, yeah, so demographically. Um, uh, it's got a lot of folks that live there. Uh, uh, most of them speak English. They were occupied by the by Great Britain up until uh, the 1960s, so they really are a relatively young country 
uh, from that perspective of being on their own um, uh, after after being colonized. But um, uh, they speak English, they speak Luganda, they speak some other languages, tribal languages. It's a there's uh, I don't know there's hundreds of tribes that have lived and worked in throughout the country. Um, it's uh, mostly uh, religious Christian and Muslim, probably about 50-50. Um, it's one of the unique countries in that these uh, these religions, you know, work and live together uh, relatively peacefully, which I've, I've been fascinated by. Um, yeah, so... As far as the, the economics mm. of their, uh, I understand, very poor country. Yes, uh, so what what is their what's their product? I mean, what what do they do to survive in this country? Yeah, so it's it's usually between ten, the tenth and fifteenth uh, most poor country in in the world uh, based on their uh, GDP and things like that. Uh, but they are uh, they're farmers, agricultural by by trade. So they're exporters of tea and coffee, uh, rice, other things that they export out. Um, uh, that is that's kind of the driving force always has been I mean of course now uh, as they have slowly begin to develop their they're doing other things there's other business aspects there um, recently there's you know uh, been they found oil there and things like that but it's it's yet to get off the ground development of that sort of thing um, uh, but but I mean it's limited I mean that's that's the thing it's a landlocked country uh, which really hinders their ability to, to export uh, from a, a, a good economic viable standpoint. Everything goes through Kenya or whatever, uh, which, which causes them a lot of difficulty. Um, and, and so it just, it's, it just remained to be an undeveloped country in a lot of ways because of that lack of, of resourceful industry that they have. So I gather this plays a, a huge factor in the ability for human trafficking. Absolutely. And, and um, the, I would imagine the lack of cooperation that yeah. y'all have prosecuting. Yeah, I mean, the what we call push-pull factors is it's kind of like why why are people being trafficked into the country and why are being people being trafficked out? And, and one of the reasons people are being trafficked out of the country is because they, they can't find work. Right. You know, so these recruitment companies that operate in the country, they, they tell them, sell them on these great easy jobs. Easy targets. Yeah, easy targets. I mean, and, 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 and millions, literally, that, that are looking to find work, support their family, which is understandable. So they take these jobs into these other countries. Uh, it's very risky. They know it's risky uh, a lot of times. But they go there, and then they're, they're forced into sexual exploitation, things like that. Same is true domestically. Um, where you have parents that uh, will, will force their, their child, young girls sometimes as young as 8 or 10 years old, into a marriage uh, and a sexual exploitation situation with a 50, 60-year-old man who is wanting to marry a child, uh, and the parents will facilitate that because they will receive a dowry and, it's and a some money. It's a financial gain. It's a financial gain. It's one less mouth to feed, and uh, we've now, you know, uh, and, and we, we benefit financially from that. And it's not much, but it's something um, so the poverty, the lack of education, these things that, that you would imagine in an undeveloped country um, are extremely uh, extreme motivators of trafficking, um, and that's, that's what we're up against. I mean, so, you know, as, as prosecutors, we're looking to go after high-profile targets, which we do, um, but it's, it's going to take so much more than just law enforcement and prosecution to change uh, the trafficking landscape in a country like that. Um, we're just making dents in it and in little pieces, um, but uh, there's a lot of lot, lot big bigger things at play. Do you feel that the the human trafficking there is 
individual or is it larger such as a a gang is facilitating this a business is facilitating it is you know what i'm saying is there an organization driving this yeah it's a good question because i think when people think of trafficking uh and i'm I'm learning this still learning it Uh, i i think when people think of trafficking internationally uh they think of these rings of of traffickers working together moving people across the countries and all this sort of stuff and i know that exists uh different and different different ways um, but in Uganda, it's it's a lot less sophisticated, honestly. It's uh, it's it's little. It could be a little two or three people working together to, uh, like some of my child sacrifice cases, where you know which doctors are instructing a a person to sacrifice a child in order to be to be blessed. Yeah, so, so we'll have to pause yeah, there. What, yeah. How does this come? I mean, because obviously yeah. as you said this isn't here. So what what exactly yeah. is this child sacrifice yeah, so, part of trafficking? So because uh, of the culture there, um, in in you know there's there's uh, obviously different types of religion. One of them is a as a cultural type of religion that uh, that is involved in witchcraft. So a witch doctor is is not someone who's medically trained. Uh, it's it's someone who uh, has some some ability to um, to kind of manipulate people into thinking that they have some spiritual powers. Uh, that I mean that's the simplest way to put it. Um, and over the years, uh, many many years uh, within the culture, uh, witch doctors had been seen as 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 someone uh, you know who who is powerful, uh, spiritually powerful, can heal, can bless. Uh, and things like that, and I don't, you know, obviously know all the ins and outs of that, but that's that's the basic concept. Um, and so, still today in Uganda, there's a there's a segment of the population that believe witch doctors have the ability to 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 make their life better, like through healing, through blessings, whatever it may be. And so, witch doctors exist uh, in the country. Um, and so, for example, in a couple of cases I, I, that come to mind this year, we worked on where a, a business owner, a small business owner, would go to a witch doctor and say, my business is struggling. Right. Uh, I'm not able to sell X, Y, and Z uh, like I need to. I can't feed my family. The witch doctor will say, okay, well, the, the way that I can bless your business uh, and help you is for you to sacrifice a child or bring me the arm of a child or the right hand of a child and I can do a ritual with that and then you will be blessed. Um, that sounds crazy to us. Oh, it does. It's yeah. like there's some uh, form somewhere like yeah, this, it, this equals this or whatever. It, it really yeah. is. It, it's, it's crazy to think about. Um, but, uh, you know, the Ugandans, based on these deep cultural roots, they, some of them believe that. And so they will follow through with what they're instructed to do. So we had... Um, within a couple of weeks, we had a couple of young girls, five years old, who who were were, were trafficked for the purpose of them being sacrificed, um, and and they were they were beheaded, um, and and it's all part of a scheme of or four or five people abducting the child, transporting the child, and doing that. So I mean, this is I would gather that again it involves kidnapping to the side that no one's handing over their own child in in belief of the witch doctor are they well no that's that's more unusual uh they'll sell their children for other things but it's not common that they would sell their child for for purpose of the child being sacrificed Uh, i wouldn't say that's never happened but but typically yes the child is being abducted removed from their their setting moved to a different city within the country uh, and then that's when the ritual kind of takes place so I mean, besides, so as far as these witch doctors, I mean, obviously, are, are these cultural? They, they've come up, as you've said. Uh, 
is there some type of financial gain this witch doctor has from this, or is it just the power that they have as like a leader of, of, yes. of their... Yeah, no, there's not really uh, there's not really a financial gain other than they maintain their power, and I'm sure they use that power in order to stay financially stable in, within the community. Um, it's more of just um, maintaining the, the, the spiritual power they have within the community. Uh, one of the things that's been interesting, historically, uh, prosecutors and law enforcement have, have feared witch doctors uh, and going after them for different things because the witch doctor might put a curse on them or something, right? right. Uh, and that's not as prevalent now, obviously. Um, but even this year, we had a couple of cases where I'm sitting down with law enforcement and I'm saying, okay, we've charged this person, this person, this person with trafficking based on this scheme. Why aren't we charging the witch doctor? And, um, and they wouldn't go after the and, witch well, doctor. Well, they, they, they just... They've hesitated, and and then once we walk through the law and show how it's appropriate for the for us to go after them in this way, um, they they get on board and they they move they move on it. But it's not their first thought because uh, that's not how they've always done things. Um, and and um, and there's you know some fear of retaliation there at some point. So now you, you've talked about the prosecution. I'm just curious as a country, their their handling of it and disposition, and and obviously it's my my lack of knowledge of, of Uganda, but I mean, do they have jury? Do they have judge? I mean, how, how do punishments come out and, and how does, I guess, is it strong punishment? Is it, is it light punishment for these type of crimes? Yeah, no, good question. So the, the Ugandan have, they have the Prevention of Trafficking Persons Act, uh, which is based on a UN protocol uh, from about 2000. And the law has been in effect in Uganda since 2009. So really it's relatively new. They're still figuring it out, but it, it is a well-drafted law. Uh, for for trafficking a child in any manner, it's a capital death offense. So it's as it's as stringent as you can be. And a lot of the other types of trafficking, uh, even with adults, it uh, it's it's a capital life offense. It's it's very serious. It's uh, it's it's a well written law. Um, and so within the judiciary, um, most of their trials and cases are handled by a judge. Um, they have something uh, that, that are called assessors, which is like a jury. So if we go to trial on a case, we have the judge, and then they'll have four to five to six assessors, which are people from the community that come in. And uh, you might find this interesting. What they do is after the trial is over, the assessors will deliberate. They'll make a recommendation to the judge okay. about whether the person's guilty or not guilty. The judge can 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 rely on that or, or disregard it altogether. Okay. So that's kind of the difference there in, in, in how things flow. Um, most of the time they do take, uh, take into account the assessor's decision, but not always. Um, and then the judge has sole discretion in punishment. Um, and so what I've seen is we have a long way to go of getting our cases across the finish line to conviction and punishment. A lot of the judges in the country still need a lot of educating in trafficking, uh, much like this country, understanding the trauma dynamics and, and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they have the ability to, to do some serious punishment uh, on traffickers, uh, and they have done it. Uh, we just have a lot more to do uh, before we can start to, to see that deterrent effect uh, kick in where people, traffickers are thinking, you know, this is not what I want to engage in in this country because it does lead to this type of punishment. Um, we're starting to see some of that, but we have a long way to go. 
So as far as deterrent is a factor, and, and obviously a, a much longer longer debate and different show as far right. as as far as death penalty stuff and whatnot, but obviously um, a complaint in this country after verdict and appeals is how long someone stays there. So in Uganda, do they have appeal process? Is there a is there a extended length of time if someone is uh, sentenced to death? Right. Uh, what what are they looking at as far as housing versus death penalty being enacted? Yeah, from what I've seen, um, Dan and I, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm still learning. I they don't have the long drawn out processes that we have. They have an appellate court, a mid, uh, intermediate appellate court, and then they have the Supreme Court of Uganda. Um, you know, so it's it's structured in, a, in the same type of hierarchy. Um, but but. What's been interesting is there's actually uh, a moratorium on the death penalty in Uganda currently that I believe has been in effect for a couple of years. So I've not seen them carry out that uh, part of the process. But from what I understand in talking to prosecutors, they do not have a long drawn out. You do your, your, you can appeal. Sure. Uh, it's not mandatory like it is here. You can appeal, um, but it quickly those decisions are made and, and, and the, the punishment is inflicted. Um, one of the things I, I found interesting uh, on the front end is sometimes it takes an extremely long time to get cases to trial, uh, even longer than you might see in the U.S., um, uh, which has been interesting. And, and they, they're uh, allowing people out on bond is a lot more restrictive. So they will house you in the prison until you, uh, until you, um, you know, your trial date, and then you go back to the prison. They don't have jails like we do in, in, in Texas. So is it because of the process that it is taking that long, or mm-hmm. is it just the, the lack of prosecutors, lack of, of no, availability? It, or? It's, it's, no, it's the lack of um, uh, the ability to... The judiciary there struggles with, with efficiency, uh, and, and so they're not moving cases in high volumes like we see in the U.S., and that really bogs down the, the system from what I've seen. Um, of course, they're understaffed, under-resourced to sure. carry the volumes, uh, but but that's been the biggest inhibitor of us moving cases through so far has been our inability to get them to trial, and, 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 and plea bargaining is not something they really engage in there. Um, it's a new concept to them to plea bargain a case. So, you know, we, we dispose of 99% of right. cases here yeah. through plea bargain, and that has been a big struggle for them to understand. Uh, they're starting to see that more of it's happening, um, but it's not at an effective rate yet. So, I mean, you, you've not been there for a very long time in the big scheme of things, but have you seen an impact so far as far as a decrease in the work that y'all are doing? Yeah. Uh, despite COVID this year, um, I, I trained our team. We trained 252 prosecutors in the country of Uganda, there's only around 300 total. Um, and as soon as we begin training them uh, in the law, which many of them were not familiar with, it's their own law, uh, mm-hmm. but they, they, they have not had a lot of uh, experience with it, they immediately begin to utilize the law. They, they realized they had been missing the trafficking cases or filing them as something else that was getting them nowhere, a lesser charge or whatever. Um, and so within several months, uh, particularly between July and November, uh, we begin to see them proactively going after these cases, working with law enforcement in their communities and filing these cases. So I'd been told on average uh, year to year, they were filing maybe 30 to 40 or so trafficking cases a year. 
uh, and this year we'll finish out with uh, with almost 200 being filed. Oh, and that's um, even with COVID. That's even yeah. with COVID. I mean, so so they're open to it. Um, they're they just need some some you know some some uh, some support and and education on that. So the goal from here is to is to continue to identify those cases, build better investigations, uh, equip the prosecutors for taking them to court, and then hopefully, as I said, getting across the, 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 the line of, of conviction, if that's if the evidence supports that, uh, to punishment. And if we can do that, uh, those small few pieces, right. um, then uh, we will start to see success for sure. Now, what's happening in Uganda, I know you're surrounding close, is, is that team, do they sort of take what you have and they have taught others they learn to yeah go that's further. yeah that's part of the plan I mean my my approach is is well behind the scenes uh, you know um, uh, to, 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 to instruct carefully day to day with them um, but yeah ultimately I want to work myself out of a job that that's the, right. that's the the model of the Institute we're not long-term you know there to support them and do their Give work them structure and have it, them it go. show them some things that may work to help them be effective uh, in a very uh, diplomatic way, and then we, you know, we, we let them take it, and that's the goal. Well, Tyler, you've done amazing things for Montgomery County. I know you're doing amazing things there. They certainly have chosen the, the right man. We uh, certainly miss you here. Mm. We, we pray for you and your family, what you're doing there. We think about you all the time. Uh, we thank you so much for coming in today and just sharing the information with, with all of our listeners. Uh, and if there's a topic you want to see on the show, if uh, you have a guest you'd like to see, you can reach out to me, Dan, at crimescenetoday.com. And, again, I will leave with the number if uh, for the National Human Trafficking Hotline is 1-888-373-7888. Again, that's 1-888-373-7888. If you're a victim, if you know a victim, if there's something you've seen that's suspicious, uh, please call that line or call your local police and reach out. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.